Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very exciting guest that we have today, someone that has done it so many times. I mean, I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit. So again, you know, the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, even exiting, you know, multiple companies. So yeah, I think we're going to be finding this very, very inspiring. So without further ado, Gene Hoffman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So originally born and raised in North Carolina. So give us a little of a, a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Well, so uh, my dad was a, a former CPA who ended up running a company that was kind of nationwide. And the executive offices were there, but they were actually like the operational offices were in Reno. So ended up with this kind of weird, like living in North Carolina, but spending summers in Reno, Nevada. Um, but ended up also uh, heading on a straight line toward Carolina basketball. Um, I had gotten involved with uh, a friend of Coach Smith who ran our basketball program at my high school and uh, ended up kind of being recruited in, at Carolina. And in fact, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I expected I'd be a sportscaster. I had done some radio work and had a recording studio. And so uh, it was just that this Internet thing came around and it looked like it might need some fixing. And let's talk about that basketball for a second here. What do you think you you got from? basketball and and when it comes to leadership so coach smith is just a real scion of leadership it is you know a finishing school for young men who are become world famous superstars you know when you look at folks like michael jordan vince carter you know you get the set of skills that that system teaches and you know uh, we'll, we'll kind of talk about this later, but I ended up being one of the youngest CEOs of a public company in the United States ever. And I could never pull it off without what I had learned from Carolina basketball. You know, it's everything from how do you handle the media to, you know, what are your core principles and, you know, thinking about things strategically. So it was just a very, very powerful set of, uh, you know, as I said, fine young finishing school for likely to be successful young men. So then let's talk about what you were adding, you know, what you were alluding to earlier there, fixing the Internet that came out at that point. So so what happened after you graduated? Well, before I graduated, uh, some friends of mine and I were seeing what was happening. And, you know, in 1993, when I went to Carolina, it was oddly a little bit of a hotbed of the Internet. Uh, Sunsight was there. Linux was hosted there originally. And I was watching a uh, video on Gopher. This is pre-web of an incoming thunderstorm. And, you know, this used to be the hardest thing to find in 1992 or 1991. You know, you hope that maybe the television station would cut in and show you that in an ad break or something. But the idea that I could just go get the radar and watch it right now, it just made it very clear to me that the internet was going to be huge. Uh, and then when the Netscape IPO occurred, a bunch of my friends were saying, hey, we should do something, you know, let's start an ISP. And I was like, hmm, ISPs feel very, very, you know, margin narrow and repeatable with no moat. And so we all kept talking about things. And then Hotwired put up the first internet ad. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, we can fix that. We can give people the control over whether or not they see ads and we can go build that. That'll be an interesting way for us to build a real brand as a software company. So then what happened next? Well, we launched Internet Fast Forward and Cookie Cutter. Uh, you know, these days, you know, it is, it is generally ad blockers and cookie management in your web browser. And it blew up, uh, you know, cover the business section of the New York Times uh, for a little while. We we're every 30 minutes on headline news because, of course, this was prime IPO season for folks like Infoseek and Excite 
and all of those. And, you know, watching those guys on Squawk Box get asked about, you know, well, you say you're going to make money on ads, but how are you going to handle the ad blocker was really amazing. So uh, it blew up. Uh, and it blew up to the point where we decided that it was time to build something that was more of a revenue product instead of a kind of, you know, exposure product. And that led us toward PGP, uh, pretty good privacy, you know, the kind of original crypto uh, software for email. And uh, we went to integrate PGP into Netscape Mail. Um, and this was shortly after the federal government stopped investigating Phil Zimmerman for exporting PGP illegally. So uh, they ended up flying us out. And instead of us licensing PGP, they turned the tables and bought our little company out of Chapel Hill and moved us all to the Bay Area. Wow. Now, in this case, you know, like the company was acquired by McAfee. So uh, by McAfee. So what kind of visibility do you think that gave you into the full cycle of a business? Well, it was also the, who I got to work with. So, you know, the person I reported to uh, in business development was the former general counsel of Borland. Um, and so, you know, he had this set of stories and friends, this is Bob Cohn, um, that really got me a, you know, 101 is not the right term for it. It's, you know, the super graduate class in how does the Valley work? Um, that was just really powerful. It was, you know, the ability to have an idea and be immediately talking to the right person at Sun in charge of Java the next day. Um, you know, that was, I think, one of the most important things. And also seeing, you know, not everything went right inside PGP about how they raised financing and some of their leadership decisions. And so that was actually as valuable or more valuable than, you know, being at a place where everything just kind of goes right and each step just, you know, works. Now, in this case for you, I mean, it was like a really nice uh, segue into, you know, what would be a really nice exit, you know, uh, for you. So tell us about how eMusic came about as a result. Well, so at PGP, when I knew it was going to be sold to McAfee, I was kind of thinking of what am I going to do next? And it was a tie between, at the time, uh, a new cryptocurrency or a music uh, service. And both these kind of came through what I was seeing at PGP. Um, Warner Brothers had come to PGP to ask if we could help them with file sharing, file trading, because we, you know, there was apparently this huge movement of MP3 files. And this was the first time I'd heard about it. I was too busy you know, running, a, running a software company working for the basketball team. And that really put it on my radar as, wow, you know, there is huge demand for this digital music already. And it was really a hard call. And it ultimately ended up being my, my then girlfriend, now wife, looking at me and going about cryptocurrency back then. So we have to live on a strange Caribbean island surrounded by armed guards. Can we go back to the United States? Probably not. You should do that music thing. So, you know, that plus uh, it turned out Bob Cohn uh, was my co-founder of music. His uh, dad had been very active in music publishing and he and his dad had written kind of the book on the music publishing side of the music business. So, you know, we had real domain expertise and it was very clear there was an opportunity. It was one of those just, you know, right place, right time, right folks kind of opportunities. So you build that up and then eventually you sold, you sold the company. You sold the company to Vivendi for about 40, 40 million bucks. Um, so what was that transaction like? I mean, how, how did the transaction come about? Give us a little bit of an insider, an insider lens in here. Yeah, there's, so there's two things going on. You know, we took the company public and so we were, you know, the uh, NASDAQ 40 tech company thing. Um, and we ended up buying rollingstone.com. Uh, so we had the online rights for it, you know, obviously sort of part of marketing the music. But what was interesting was we bought it right before the dot-com crash. And so a lot of properties couldn't sell ads after the crash. We could, but the metrics didn't work right. The, you know, deal with Rolling Stone kind of assumed CPMs that were much higher than they ultimately were. So it actually put us in the corner. But we've been building such a relationship with the various record labels because we were out there saying, you know, look, you're going to have to make music easier to buy, subscribe, and use. Otherwise, you are going to continue to have these piracy problems in the background. 
And I, it was those conversations that led ultimately to kind of a strategic conversation with um, Edgar Bronfman and, you know, Universal Music effectively in the Vindy world for them to say, this is a real opportunity. You know, this is the only company that's actually gone out and sold digital music at any scale because we were actually really starting to scale up the subscription business side of the music model quite well, actually. So that was, you know, really those kind of ongoing multi-year conversations with the likely strategic partners that would either be a partner or an acquirer. So then after the transaction was done, what happened? I became a music executive for a year. It was really quite hilarious. Uh, one of the strangest things I saw, you uh, had to have the right type of car. You actually had to have it approved in your employment agreement that your car had to be nice enough. I had to like, you know, argue that my car was nice enough for them. Funny stuff like that. But what I found most interesting, what they found interesting too, was, uh, you know, back during the, I don't know, Jupiter conferences or whatever, you know, there was a question that would always get asked about what was the right way to kind of go about going to this market. And I had been given the same answer the whole time. And I did it again as an employee. And they were all kind of shocked. They're like, you weren't lying to us. I'm like, no, some of us in tech are actually trying to like help you build a real market here. So then, so then for you, I mean, you didn't stay long, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So That's how did right. the idea of Vindicia come about? Because with Vindicia, actually, you did stay, you know, there, you know, pushing that for a little over 13 years. I mean, that in yep. dark years when you're building a company is it's is is a long time. So so how did the idea, you know, and the opportunity of Vindicia come about knocking? So it really came from being able to operate new music. So when we sold it to Universal, you know, we really got to focus directly on just the business. And so you really started looking, okay, what's subscriber lifetime? What's total lifetime? Where are all these subscribers going that still want to be our subscribers? And it turns out that the credit card infrastructure was just never really designed for ongoing subscription services. It was designed to sell you a fur coat mail order. Um, and so with that, you know, we'd spent a lot of time, Mark Randolph, again, the, the Moreland connection, you know, Mark was the original CEO and founder of Netflix. He and I used to have quarterly conference calls about how broken the credit card infrastructure was. And so it showed me that very clearly, you know, from 2002, 2003 on, software entertainment was all going to go subscription for the while. And if that was the case, it's an art to keep long-term subscriber value. So Vendicia was definitely born of that operational realization that there was a real problem that you could significantly solve and very profitably solve. So, you know, it took some time for us to get to a place where we believed that major corporations would hand us all of their credit cards. Uh, but ultimately, they did. Uh, we ended up running the back-end infrastructure for the NFL, as they went over the top, uh, folks like Dollar Shave Club, you know, you name it. It was easier to tell you who we didn't support. And that was Spotify and Netflix. And just because they were early and Netflix had a lot of the same information we did. So, you know, from that perspective, it was uh, a true SaaS build. I mean, SaaS companies take longer. But, you know, we built something real and had, you know, multiple interested acquirers at the right time and were able to exit uh, to Amdocs in 2017. Now, in this case, I mean, you build this company from 2003 all the way up until 2016, and you did raise some money. I mean, during that range of time, I mean, we went from like completely green area on the VC. I mean, for example, like the VC, you know, the venture space in, in, in New York was completely green. It was like almost non-existent. So I guess for you, how was that the journey of, of raising money? Because you raised some money, you know, for this company. Uh, you, I think that you raised about 40 million bucks. How was that the, How was that experience of raising that money throughout that range of time? Well, it helped to have already had some you know successful exits, whether they were big or not. You know, you had as an entrepreneur a bit of a track record, and so people knew that you could actually kind of navigate the system. And you know, it's also really handy when you do have that kind of depth of network to know you know 
which VC should I get a warm intro to, by whom and how? And, you know, once you then get started, you know, as long as you remember what you're trying to do for the venture firms, which is trying to 10x them over five, if you will, but these days it's more 10x over 10, uh, then you understand what their motivations are. You know, you've got to keep the business growing, and that's what we did. Um, so fundamentally, you know, it's a SaaS business. It doesn't necessarily grow as up and to the right as the traditional businesses did, but that ARR, you know, we had four or five-year customer lives from very, very large customers. And so from that perspective, we had kind of negative churn. Um, we'd actually see more growth in our existing uh, subscriber base than any losses that we saw of individual customers. So, it, you know, it was really being as capital efficient as possible, but in SaaS, you know, it takes some sort of core base to get you to scale. That's what we did. We got to scale and then we kind of used venture debt from there out to continue to scale up. Um, and, you know, you kind of knew that you put a dollar in on year one and you got about a dollar 10 out and, you know, 12, 13 months later. So you were alluding to it. The company got acquired by Amdocs for north of a hundred million bucks, but why? Why did you guys think it was the, the right timing to, to go for an acquisition? So uh, it was a couple things. We were really scaling out. Um, you know, we were one of those weird deals where, in fact, where our model was a little conservative in its next year's operation when we sold it. It was one of those kind of businesses where you, we really had good control over it, really understood how it worked. So it was scaling nicely. It meant that we could get good at multiple. Um, it also, you know, at 13, you start to worry about your VCs because you start getting into uh, their uh, portfolios that need to liquidate and pass back to the LPs, right? So, you know, it was those various things. And as I said, we created a competitive bidding environment. We'd really, you know, shown ourselves to be the kind of core platform that the television properties and the movie properties were using to go over the top. And that was obviously a big deal and especially strategic for Amdocs who counted all those, uh, those folks as customers for a very different sort of product of theirs. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case for you, you took some time off. And, uh, you know, as, as you said, you know, to upgrade the, the boat and, and do other stuff. You know, when you're a founder, I think that when you have like those downtimes, I mean, I think it can be sometimes a little weird. So how long did that time off last and what were you doing during that time off? 
So this time around, I did get about a year off. And it's something I experienced when I sold eMusic to Universal and took a little time off uh, after the Vivendi thing. You know, there it took me about 40 days to get bored. And that was the sign for me that I need to be doing something. And I wanted to get to that place again, because especially, you know, you run a, a high scale SaaS business and you run a competitive bidding environment. I had plenty of stress to like let go of. And so, you know, that year was really me going, OK, when I wake up bored, it's now time. Um, and during that year, you know, a lot of uh acquiring my new boat, getting it in the right condition, also ended up getting my captain's license during that time. So I was doing a few things from the sort of hobby perspective that I didn't get to do when I was, you know, so busy running day to day. But it was really going, I know I got one more in me and I want to do something important. And it was, you know, very clear to me as soon as I started thinking about it's time to go back. Well, duh, of course, it's cryptocurrency. But, you know, when I looked at the market, I saw two big problems. Um, I saw, you know, Bitcoin being almost perfect, but using way more electricity, especially if you scale it up, than we want. And Ethereum is an interesting attempt at smart contracting, but, you know, we see like the North Koreans still a billion dollars last year. And so it's just not ready for prime time. And so uh, when I heard Bram Cohen, who I'd gotten to know through uh, our mutual venture backers uh, in, in 2010s, if you will, and had a bunch of friends in common back in the cypherpunk era. Uh, and when I heard he had a solution potentially to Bitcoin's energy use, I, I was like, dude, we got to talk. So then what happened? Uh, I ended up being the first or second meeting the then co-founders took. The other guy was Naval. So I've been with the company since inception. I ended up going full time approximately four years ago and, you know, officially became CEO beginning this year, but had been doing the role for a good 18, 24 months. So for the people that are listening to really understand it, what, what are you guys doing? So we have built a much better blockchain. It is as secure as Bitcoin. It's very much in the Bitcoin style. A lot of Bitcoin is exactly right. But we've then added a real smart contracting environment to it. And that smart contracting environment is highly secure. It's certainly a little bit harder to develop. So it's not as easy to use as a developer as uh, Ethereum is, but that's because when you're done, it audits, you can absolutely reason about what's going to happen. And so you can put, you know, billions to trillions of dollars on that chain and have it be used with real money. Um, and in fact, already the World Bank uh, and the IFC, the Republic of Singapore and AIDA have all partnered with us to go deliver the Article 6.2 Paris Agreement, this is the voluntary carbon markets, you know, really leveraging what a blockchain does well, which is builds trust and information, and then lets you break markets on top of that. Now, I guess uh, there's a lot uh, going on right now, no? like on the macro uh, environment, you know, also with the banks going belly up. Uh, you have also the former CTO of Coinbase saying that in the next uh, three months, we're seeing Bitcoin going all the way up to a million, which, you know, at this point seems kind of crazy having Bitcoin at 27,000. How do you think that all of like because at the end of the day, crypto, you know, to a certain degree was built, you know, as a response to what we saw in 08. So how do you think we're going to see this space uh, behaving now that we're starting to really, you know, be in the middle of like shaky waters? Well, you know, I think the last couple of weeks outlined two very important things. There is a real reason why Bitcoin was built, and that real reason is still really valid. I mean, I joked on Twitter that, you know, no coiners always tell me that the Western financial system is safe. And it's kind of like I don't hear that message in the last two weeks because it's not exactly safe. And fractional reserve banking has always had these issues. Uh, this time around, everybody had an option. Um, you know, in 2008, when I was running Vendicia, 
I wasn't sure whether the money I had raised, you know, only like 18 months before was actually going to be there in the bank the next morning. Uh, this time around, we were SVB customer, but we had 85% of the cash not at SVB. And I've got like a month plus in Bitcoin self-custodied of our payroll as well. So, you know, we had choices. Um, I do think we're going to see a major shakeout and it's time. There's a lot of projects that uh, sold illegal securities or are in over their heads and they're only like, they're decentralized in name only. You know, two people control a thing you think is a blockchain. That's not what the point was. And so I do think you're going to see the SEC and others be very aggressive finally in going through and cleaning house. But once that's done, there are real technologies here. The, you know, Bitcoin's real. You know, Ethereum's somewhere in between, but it is real. I mean, there's a, a market for it. Uh, Monero, Zcash, these are the kinds of things, Chia, that are going to make through this kind of regulatory gauntlet. And it's because if you're doing this right, the two worlds can interoperate. You know, the, the kind of base layer of Bitcoin or Chia is going to have the kind of, I don't know, permissionlessness and pseudonymity and volatility that we've always seen. But then folks like Vera and Gold Standard can issue carbon on top of it, and it's going to have a carbon market riding on top, and it's going to have the dynamics of that asset. You know, this is where things like Circle and stablecoins come in too. So I think you're going to start seeing blockchains be used as money and money adjacent kind of rails for all sorts of finance. So can you talk to us as, as well about the global use cases for blockchain? So uh, one of the earliest ones is what I was talking about with the voluntary carbon markets. So uh, Singapore, AIDA, and the World Bank launched the Climate Action Data Trust, which runs on top of the Chia blockchain. What this is, is as Edgar is to kind of securities and debt markets, this is to uh, voluntary carbon markets. So all of the registries, Vera, Gold Standard, government of Japan, the government of UK, will all have um, a, a table in this database. It's a meta registry. And so today, when you go register at Vera, Vera doesn't know if you've registered somewhere else. By summer, one of the first things Vera will do is check this meta registry to make sure that acreage at that time doesn't already exist. And so all of a sudden now you have a way between the nations and the voluntary registries to at least make sure that, you know, this carbon offset was created once it was sold however it was sold and was retired once. And you can trace that on chain. Uh, and then on top of that, we're tokenizing carbon with the IFC. So we're taking high quality nature-based carbon, registering it in that process, and then making it available so that folks like Exxon and Meta can just you know, buy in a market commodity carbon by being able to both audit underneath, you know, what projects are in here. And then when they're done, have a full audit trail that shows it retiring on chain, then retiring down the Climate Action Data Trust so you can actually track and see exactly what they bought in public in an audible way. Now, for you guys, how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, we've raised about $80 million to date. And obviously, you've raised quite a bit. You've done multiple companies. Why did you bring the investors that you did? So we, again, were looking for true venture-backed investors, high growth, major technology changes. I mean, this is fundamentally a technology company. We're a software company. And so you wanted to have folks who both understood that and believed that blockchains were as transformative as we believed them to be. So that was very much how I kind of looked at, you know, who made sense and who we approached. Was it like uh, already people that you had an existing relationship with or, or was it like new people? Because obviously this is a new segment too. And you've been, you know, in the venture space for quite a while. So how was that process of making sure that, they, that you were able to tap in, into the right people with that layer of social proof? 
So I would say that about half and half. And what I mean by that is about half of the kind of core drivers were people who either had existing relationships with and wanted to work with before um, or, you know, were tangentially involved in various projects that I was involved in. The rest were often that next layer out from the social network where people would be like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. You should also talk to. And, you know, that that is very much how many of our rounds came together. It was, you know, that kind of, you know, these are the folks we know are supportive and therefore these are the other folks you should be talking to, too. And obviously vision is something that you shared with them. So to that note, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Gene, and the um, let's say you wake up in a world where the vision of Chia Network is fully realized, what does that world look like? The funny part about that statement is, is that the company has been distributed to shareholders for a lot of value. There's a foundation that runs on like the Linux Foundation to keep the core developers going. And this thing is fully and totally decentralized. But we're not there yet. First, you've got to have the ability to really continue to finance development to, you know, walk through the regulatory environment. And, you know, it's our intention to be a public company, which we think is the one right way to make sure that investors get the right disclosures and controls, and then ultimately that we distribute this value out to the shareholder base, right? So, uh, you know, we definitely took a different path than a lot of crypto companies did, but we took a path because we understood how the regulatory environment worked and how we could fit in and make that work for the ultimate goals. Because the real goal of Chia is ultimately to be a public good that is the, you know, data trust layer and the transaction and finance capability layer that the internet has lacked. And in doing that, you want to be more like Linux, ultimately, where there's no one person that anybody looks at. You know, Bram is a bit Linux-like, but even Linux has started to be less important to Linux, right? Um, and so that's really the, the ultimate vision is that you've got this extremely secure, open source, rich capability infrastructure that everybody uses. And you, you, you were talking just now about the, the regulatory you know, side of it. You were talking about the SEC earlier. What does regulatory hacking look like? What, what does that look like? So, you know, throughout my career, I've had this interesting set of opportunities to really try to understand what the regulatory regimes were and how to navigate them. Uh, at PGP, uh, at the time, PGP was still highly uh, controlled for export. And so myself, Bob Cohn, and another person came up with the idea of publishing the PGP source code in a book. And I was the uh, most senior executive with the least to lose. So it came to me to actually go export it. Uh, I was the second person to ever be officially investigated for exporting crypto. But it was understanding what the limitations of the law were. Um, you know, exporting a book is totally First Amendment protected activity. And that was making it very clear that it was very hard for the government to say, hey, you can't build software this way because software is at heart speech. Uh, with music, you know, it's an extremely complicated regulatory environment. It's got 115, 120 years of really weird laws and rules, you know, Every song you hear on the radio has two copyrights. Most people have no idea that that's how that works. Uh, and so it was really looking at both, you know, how do we better serve actual customers so that they'll pay? And how do we navigate, however, you know, the, the legal situation? Because, of course, at the time, you know, Napster and others were just like, let's just rip it all off. And we were, no, let's go license this, get real, real rights to this and actually go out and do it. And then here with cryptocurrencies and blockchains, there's a real problem about how do you finance development? And in fact, Bitcoin kind of shows some, uh, I don't know, creakiness on this issue. Uh, you know, it, because there's no limited liability entity, that means that the, the fake Satoshi has been causing trouble by suing a bunch of developers. And that there's no real way that developers necessarily get paid, that you don't kind of have a better ongoing advancement there. 
And so, you know, we looked at the regulatory environment and we went, okay, there's no reason you can't follow securities laws and engaged early on with the SEC and have come up with a very different way to ultimately get to the same place. But we think the way to do that is to not throw out like 400 years of the joint stock corporation just because we can. Instead, let's use that. Let's use the, you know, kind of playbook we all know of building a tech software company that ultimately becomes a public company and then ultimately at the end distributes itself out to the shareholder base and kind of, you know, step, steps away after everybody's made their returns and their rewards. So we were talking about vision. We are talking about future earlier. Let's talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. If I could put you into a time machine and bring you back in time, back in time to that point where you were still maybe in, in North Carolina, they're going after your studies. Uh, and perhaps, you know, you were wondering, hey, you know, I want to do something on my own. Imagine if you had the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with that younger gene and being able to give that younger gene one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? So uh, my answer here is kind of odd, but I think it's important. And that is, like personal therapy is the thing I would most recommend. Um, I had this interesting moment at, at Visia, you know, in the Valley, companies usually had like a five-year lifetime. You know, you, you did not necessarily hang around with these things very long. But SaaS changed that. The, the way the model worked, you, you were much longer. And so you kind of got to year five or six and realized there were a bunch of old company things you had to put in place, like career development. And when I kind of looked around, we you know, did different things for different people on the executive team, but it kind of all looked back at me and went, what are you going to do? And, you know, I've been kind of a natural born leader, but what it really became clear to me is like, you know, if I could be even more comfortable in my own skin, I would be an even better leader. And I wish I'd had that realization sooner. You know, I would have been that much more effective in all of the various in inputs because I was less anxious about things and, you know, understood what drove me or, you know, why I might be mad about something. Like just kind of understanding yourself emotionally is underrated to be able to be the guy who says in the room when you're talking to somebody, like I had this moment, my entire team is talking to these people and they were charlatans. And I didn't understand them. Nobody else understood them. And nobody wanted to ask. And I, I find that place in my career where it's like, uh, this may be a dumb question, but I don't understand at all what you're saying. <laughs> and I could see the wave of relief across my team because nobody wanted to be the one who looked stupid. But, you know, being in a place where you don't care anymore about that, I think is the, the, the sooner you can get to that as a person, the better. I love that. So, uh, Gene, for the people that are, that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? I'm at Hoffman G on Twitter. Uh, that's probably the absolute best way to get me. I'm pretty present, present there. So Amazing. Well, Gene, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro, for having me on. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.